My boys were in high school. My wife and I both worked. Life was busy, but we knew we had to get outside to stay happy. Fridays, we could have the camping gear in the car and hit the road to Yosemite by 5.30. But then there was the food. I'm Kip Clifton, and I started Fireside Provisions to help people like me get out of the city and go camp more easily and more often. Just go to firesideprovisions.com before your next camping trip. Choose from a variety of affordable meals created by award-winning chefs. Then select your dates and number of friends. We'll deliver the food straight to your door the day before you leave. Fireside Provisions, delicious meals made for the outdoors. You're listening to The Dirt Pack Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Patagonia, Kuat Racks, New Belgium Brewing, and REI. A couple of months before we left for our trip to Utah, I started tearing up a head of kale for dinner and discovered that Connor had disappeared. I got the leaves in the steamer, set the timer, and walked around the corner to find him on the couch, buried in Desert Tower Selects. Once caught, he followed me back into the kitchen to help finish cooking. Midway through the dishes, Connor wandered back into the living room. He reemerged, guidebook in hand, and planted himself between me and the stack of dishes on the counter behind me, like a small child in need of attention and oblivious to anything else. He asked if he could read me something. Babe, I said, scooting him gently to the side with a dry elbow. Could you wait until I'm done, please? He slumped back over to the couch. Once I finished the dishes, we sat down. Connor, I told him, I just don't think climbing towers is a good idea for the health of our relationship. I grew up sport climbing on solid rock, mostly basalt and andesite. I had tried to climb a desert tower once before. The Mace, in Sedona, Arizona. My partner and I struggled up three of the five loose, terrifying pitches. Then, on the fourth pitch, I got stuck on a ledge below a wide crack. I didn't really know how to crack climb at the time, so I tried instead to grab onto the small edges that stuck out from the red walls on either side of the crack. But the moment I started to shift my weight off of the ledge, my handhold crumbled off in my hand. The next time I tried, my foothold popped and sent my shin grating down the sandpaper rock until my foot slammed into the ledge. Then another handhold blew. At that point, I realized if I wanted to make it past that damn ledge, I would have to suck it up and try to wedge a body part into the crack. I tried jamming my fist first, but the crack was too wide and it skittered out the moment I waited it. My foot did the same thing. I tried every orientation of every body part I could think of. A half an hour went by before, scraped and frustrated almost to tears, I yelled up at my partner that I couldn't do it. We bailed and returned the guidebook. From then on, I associated tower climbing with abrasions, frustration, and failure. climb, baby. It'll be so good, Connor would say in response to my protests. I told him that if we were going to climb towers, we should make a movie about it. I thought it would be great to film him gleefully telling me how much fun we were going to have, and then cut to me a couple hundred feet off the deck somewhere in the red middle of Utah yelling about how much I hated climbing towers. 
We laughed. The scenario played out, kale and all, at least a half dozen times in the months leading up to our trip. A week before we left, I gave in. Connor doesn't get that persistent about things that often. I couldn't say no. One tower, I told him. I would climb one tower with him. Three days later, I came down with the flu. Then a sinus infection. I bought a neti pot. We stuffed the Subaru full of gear, and at 6 o'clock on a rainy Seattle Tuesday evening, we started driving east. It was 11 p.m., 29 hours after we pulled out of the parking garage. It started to drizzle as we wound our way up into Colorado National Monument. At 7 the next morning, Connor woke me up with a cup of coffee. I can count on one hand the number of times Connor has gotten out of bed before me when he didn't have to go to work or make a plane. He was stoked. My head hurt, and I couldn't breathe out of my nose. I stopped every three or four minutes of the approach to blow snot rockets out of my clogged sinuses. We made it to the base of Otto's route with about six hours to climb, descend, and make the three-hour drive to Carbondale, Colorado to meet friends. Connor asked, You want to lead the first pitch? I told him, absolutely not. I felt miserable. A local put up the first descent on Otto's route in 1911. He soloed the thing in a pair of cowboy boots. When the rock got too steep to scramble easily, he chiseled steps into the soft sandstone and drilled holes for metal pipes, which he used for handholds. Over the past hundred years, the steps have eroded and the pipes have been removed, leaving evenly spaced, sloping footholds in two-finger pockets which Connor used to bounce upwards. It's just so good. It's so goofy. You, you can't take yourself seriously. I heard him yell, All right, you're on, Jen. Felt the rope go tight and started up behind him. The last 20 feet of the final pitch has eroded into a mushroom-shaped overhang. I slotted my fingers into two of the pockets and placed my foot gingerly onto one of the disintegrating steps. The grains of sand under my foot acted like ball bearings and shot my feet out behind me, which left me dangling unceremoniously with half my weight on my arms, half of it on an aggressively cinched top rope. I looked up at Connor, who had a concerned expression on his face. Connor? I yelled. I f***ing hate this shit. Too tired and angry and sick to care any more about style, I grabbed the draw, yarded past the worst of the sand, and belly flopped onto the top of the tower where I curled up on my side in a mouth-breathing ball. We looked at the time, snapped a photo, and wrapped down to our packs. On the ground, I unclipped the hot belay device from my harness. I looked over at Connor, smiled, and announced, This is the best part of my day so far. For a moment, a smile of pure joy spread across his face, which, just as quickly, flipped into disappointment when he realized that I was talking about being back on the ground. Five days later, we hiked toward the burgundy and orange fisher mud castles. Over the weekend, I had recovered from my illness and gotten talked into one more tower. The super topo printout describes the top of ancient arts by saying, The spiraling cone summit with its narrow base and wildly twisting proportions seems to defy the laws of physics. A raven fart should be enough to topple it, but somehow the summit stubbornly clings to the wall. 
We scrambled up the first pitch, then started the second, a chimney with wallies made more of mud than rock. As I dropped need-stemmed, mantled chimney, scooted thrutch, hand-jammed and poured red dirt down my shirt, something peculiar happened. I started smiling. I teetered my way up the 10-D pitch without grabbing the draw, then scooted across the two-foot strip of horizontal rock, like a sidewalk perched 200 feet above the desert floor. I beached whaled onto the aptly named diving board, which protrudes at just the wrong height to mount gracefully. I walked over to the final iconic spire of rock, which corkscrews into the impossibly blue desert sky. I grabbed the first cool holds and high-stepped, then froze. Yeah, no, I yelled down to Connor. I am not going any higher. The whole top of this thing is going to fall over. Well, yeah, it's probably going to fall over in a rainstorm sometime. No, no, it's going to fall over with someone on it, and it's going to kill someone. I told him, I'm coming down now. I'm not going up there. Connor told me calmly, All right, you can do whatever you want to do. I took a deep breath and climbed to the anchors, three feet below the top. I yelled down that I wasn't going any higher as I made the final moves to the summit. My body driven by a curiosity, a desire to touch the top of that thing that apparently outweighed my rational fear. I touched the final pizza-sized plate of rock. It moved. I down-climbed back to the slings wrapped around the towers. We wrapped the route. Three days later, I sweated through the switchbacks that zigzag up the side of the thousand-foot red cone from which Castleton Tower protrudes like an oversized birthday candle. I left the car before Connor. He always takes longer to finish packing and then hikes faster. I counted my steps and switchbacks, determined to stay ahead as long as possible. He caught me at the final layer of loose gravel just under the base of the route. We scraped, scooted, stemmed, fist-decked, and knee-barred 400 feet up the north chimney and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at the top. Before we repelled, we signed the summit register. Tower number three, and we haven't broken up yet. Our last night in Moab, we stared up at the silhouettes of Castleton and the rectory from our campsite. We really had to leave by mid-morning the next day and make it to Boise at a reasonable hour. But, fine jade, baby, I said. I looked up at the striking line, the short end of a long rectangle perched high above the valley. I flipped to the page in the guidebook and read Connor the description. One of the finest tower climbs. Excellent, varied climbing with many cruxes, rewarded with awesome views of Castleton Tower and the Las Alas. If we got up at six and started driving west at three, we could make it to Boise by midnight. We could finish the route and leave by three, so long as we didn't get stuck behind another party and nothing else went wrong. I don't know, hon. It looks really hard. It seems like a big day. As we contemplated, we watched car after car file into the Castle Valley parking lot for the weekend. Ultimately, we decided to save the route for another trip. We finished our beers, crawled into our sleeping bags, and listened to the quiet chatter of climbers. Through the mesh, we could still see the silhouettes of the towers, holding court from above. I turned to Connor in the dark and whispered, But, tower climbing, baby. So
At first, I found it funny, the role reversal that occurred over the week and a half. Then, I realized that the 180 degree change in attitude isn't actually that unusual for me. I spent my first year of college ranting about how horrible of a city Seattle is for bikes, how every cyclist I saw looked miserable or terrified, or the people around them looked terrified. In truth, I was terrified. I never really rode a bike that much growing up. My dad spent enough time running behind me in my school's parking lot for me to lose the training wheels and some skin off my knees. But the neighborhood I grew up in had busy streets and steep hills with no bike lanes or shoulders. And the one time we went on a family bike ride, I forgot how to stop, coasted in front of a car, and stopped an entire busy street of traffic while my mom screamed at me. The idea of biking in traffic intimidated the hell out of me. Three years ago, I bought a bike. Now, I bike six miles to work every day and six miles back home, through downtown Seattle rush hour. I also spent about a decade making fun of runners. A friend and I would sip lattes from the comfort of an outdoor cafe table. What do you think they're running from? One of us would ask when someone jogged by. Obesity, the other would answer. We'd chuckle at our cleverness. God, that shit's bad for your knees, I'd mutter under my breath. I had always sucked at running. A year and a half ago, I bought a real pair of running shoes. Now I jog two or three times a week and get agitated when I don't get to go. I think I've latched onto the activities that intimidated me the most because they've offered me the most growth. Each time I shove myself into one of my fears, the distance between the person I am and the best person I can be gets a little smaller. So I guess I kind of dig tower climbing. Maybe someday I'll learn how to love climbing granite slab, or aid climbing, or I'll turn into a morning person and start working out before work. But let's not get carried away. I'm Jen Alchel, and this is my short. Music today from And Other Things, Black Pistol Fire, S-Punk 7, and Hemet. The tracks are courtesy of Mebio's Music Alley and Free Music Archive. As always, you can find links to the artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from you. Whether it's an iTunes review, a t-shirt purchase, or a pledge donation, we could not do this without your support. Want to pledge your support? Go to our website and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. The shorts are made possible by Fireside Provisions. This weekend... My little boy, Tep, and I were heading towards the mountains, and we used the service to order our food for the weekend. It was incredible because it was a busy week, and I didn't want to box the food. So I went to firesideprovisions.com, went to their incredible lineup of camping meals, entered the offer code DIRTBAG at checkout to get 10% off your first order. Fireside, great meals, more time finding what you came for. Additional support comes from the good people at Patagonia and also from REI. Thank you. And support comes from Kuat Racks, a little bike company out of Springfield, Missouri, who believe they can make a better bike rack. 
Visit kuatracks.com to check out their lineup of lightweight, stylish, easy-to-use roof racks, hitch racks, and accessories. Thanks, Kuat. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul. I'm Fitz Kohal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.